I'm so glad you're joining me for this episode of Street Soldiers. I'm Lisa Evers. You can find me and follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Lisa Evers. And you can catch up on all of our Hot 97 and Fox 5 Street Soldiers episodes free of charge on my website, lisaevers.com. In this hour, we're focusing on police reform. The outcry for change is being heard loud and clear by elected officials from the local level to the halls of Congress. And while there's a strong desire for change and accountability, there are also questions about what measures will really make a difference. Let's get into it right now with our panel. Welcome to this episode of Street Soldiers. Joining us now is City Council Member Vanessa Gibson. She is a member of the Public Safety Committee as former chair. She's representing the Bronx. Vanessa, great to have you with us. Thank you, Lisa. Good to see you as always. Thank you so much. Good to see you. Also joining us is Dr. Robert Gonzalez. He is an assistant professor of criminal justice at St. John's University and also a former deputy assistant commissioner of training with the NYPD. And he was a uniformed NYPD officer and sergeant for nearly 20 years. Uh, Dr. Gonzalez, thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome, Lisa. Thank you for having me. We really appreciate it. Also with us is attorney Philip Hamilton. He's a former Bronx public defender. He is now a partner in the firm Hamilton Clark LLP, specializing in criminal defense and civil rights law. Vanessa, let me start with you on this because you've been key and very involved in a lot of the legislation that is already on the books in terms of how police operate in our communities. Where do you see us right now in kind of the big picture? Um, I really do see this as a real moment in time and a moment in history for all of the stakeholders to come together and really redefine policing in America. I think what you're seeing now is civil unrest where black and brown New Yorkers are tired of seeing brothers and sisters, unfortunately, injured and or killed by police violence, not just in New York, but across America. And when we all see the video of George Floyd and what happened to him in Minneapolis, it's heartbreaking. You would be inhumane to not be affected by that video, whether you're black or brown or not. And I think many people have seen over the years that we elected officials have worked with the NYPD over the years on building relationships, establishing the NCO program, building community policing, and really looking at policing from a different perspective, understanding that police officers, just as civilians, just want to be protected, just want to be safe, just want to make sure that at the end of the day, we all go home the same way we left our homes. And I do think, again, this is a, a defining moment for us. I have seen a lot of progress in New York City over my tenure in the council the past seven years. But I do think what we've seen now is really a little bit of a setback. But I'm a firm believer in every setback being preparation for a comeback. And I think it's not just legislation. It's really about the behavior of both police officers and civilians how we all hold ourselves accountable, how we make sure that there's equity in the system. And for too long, black and brown communities have felt over-policed, over-enforced, whether it's social distancing or any other executive and, and those order, issues, right? and, you, and you bring that up. Let me bring Dr. Gonzalez in. Dr. Gonzalez, um, Vanessa Gibson brought up the social distancing thing, but there's been this perception supported by many facts going back to the stop and frisk era that the, what is tolerated and what is the practice and the normal way of policing in black and brown communities would never be tolerated in more affluent or in white communities. You were on the streets for more than 20 years, a sergeant, a supervisor, part of that. What do you say to people who have been complaining about that and are backed up by all the research and the numbers and even the NYPD's own statistics? Unfortunately, we have seen different communities get policed differently. 
uh, higher socioeconomic communities do get policed differently than lower socioeconomic communities. I mean, there's data to support that. I think the NYPD has attempted to make strides in trying to bridge those gaps, tried to revamp training uh, so that officers actually go out and enforce lawfully, ethically, and morally correct. But unfortunately, we see situations, not just here in New York City, but also nationally, especially with George Floyd, where it's just a horrendous act where you see a police officer who's aggressively uh, using a choking tactic that would be that's banned here in New York City. So again, this is a, an optimal time to bridge those relationships. This is a unique time because even police officers feel that that was a crime. And usually that doesn't happen. Police officers usually back themselves, you know, to the end until, you know, or they said some other mitigating circumstances exactly. or he had this or they thought he had a gun or whatever. Phil, when you, exactly. when you when you see what's happening right now in New York City, what's your take on where policing is? Because there's so many changes happening so fast. But how badly needed do you think they were, especially in communities of color? I mean, the reform measures in terms of bringing more accountability, especially as Dr. Gonzalez hits upon the fact that we have sometimes two different styles of policing. One stays so much in the South Bronx, as opposed to maybe half a mile away on the Upper East Side, right? We, we have two totally different styles. And I think a lot of it is when the policing in the South Bronx, not to say that any officers are, you know, or all officers are good, all officers are bad, you're gonna have some of both. The problem was with respect to the bad officers, especially that you would see in the South Bronx, there was just no accountability. The people there didn't have a lot of the power to be able to, you know, forcefully make the CCRB complaints or to forcefully be able to get in touch with, you know, the precinct or, you know, one police plaza to say, hey, you know, this particular officer was completely and totally, you know, inappropriate in its handling. You know, there was misconduct, maybe some excessive force. There, there just wasn't that power and there wasn't the accountability. Even to the extent you had those complaints being made, you know, you had situations where, you know, even if you had substantiated allegations of misconduct or excessive force against an officer, those records were ultimately being shielded by the Civil Rights Law 50A. So when we look back to last Friday with Governor Cuomo signing off on the repeal of 50A, you know, these are big starts. Okay, we still have a long way to go, but in terms of just feeling a little bit optimistic about where policing can go moving forward, I feel good because it starts first and foremost with accountability. City Council Member Vanessa Gibson, in, in, in terms of the perceptions of your constituents, because you're out in the community, they come right up to you, they have to give you, you know, giving you their viewpoints. You also work closely with the police to get improved policing in your district. But what about people's feeling? There's been since Eric Garner, 2000, that happened 2014, that right. chokehold, that police officer never faced any kind of criminal uh, sanctions. It took five years, more at least five years, of the family fighting with Reverend Sharpton to try and right. even get him to face departmental charges. And even that was like pushing a boulder up, up the hill. What do you say to New Yorkers who just feel like, you know what, the cops can get away with anything when they cross the line. I say to all New Yorkers, continue to do exactly what you're doing. The protests, the demonstrations are a part of history and a part of a defining moment. And it really does stimulate change. A lot of the legislation, like the chokehold bill, like uh, the right to record, my bill is the Post Act, which relates to police surveillance. A lot of those bills have languished for years, but now the time has come when these bills are finally passing. I see a lot on the ground. I'm out in the district every day feeding residents and giving out PPE. I talk to seniors that care about quality of life issues. They care about loitering. They care about the noise, the marijuana. They talk about all these things. They want to see more police. They don't want police abusing young black and brown kids, but they want to see police on the streets. They want to see patrol. But I also hear from young people that say they mess with us. They just try to target us. They harass us. And, you know, we just want to be 
safe. We just want to recreate. We want programs. We want jobs. We want summer activities. We just want to be left alone, right? I see both. And then I have a district like Phil said and like Dr. Rob knows in the Bronx where I have shootings all the time. I have violence. I have robberies. I have domestic incidents. So it's a real challenge to ask for more police but also make sure that there's a process by which we monitor their activities, we streamline you know, their behavior, and we make sure they're held accountable just like everyone else. Uh, we're gonna take a short break and we'll be back with more of this special episode of Street Soldiers on um, police reform. Yeah, yeah, what up, what up, what up? This is Styles Peter Ghost and this is Street Soldiers with Lisa Evers, real issues, real politics, and real people, only on Hot 97. Yeah, Ghost told you so. Welcome back to this special episode of Speed Soldiers on police reform, public safety, or politics. Joining me for this conversation is City Council Member Vanessa Gibson. She represents the Bronx and is a member of the Council's Public Safety Committee. Vanessa, great to have you with us. Thank you for having me, Lisa. Thank you so much. Also with us is Dr. Robert Gonzalez. He's an assistant professor of criminal justice at St. John's University a former NYPD Deputy Assistant Commissioner of Training, and he was on the streets as a uniformed member of the NYPD for nearly 20 years. Dr. Gonzalez, great to have you with us. Thank you for having me, Lisa. Thank you so much. Also joining us is Philip Hamilton. He's a former Bronx defender and currently a partner in the firm of Hamilton Clark LLP, and he's representing criminal defense and also civil rights attorneys and their viewpoint on this whole issue. Dr. Robert Gonzalez, we've seen some some NYPD precincts where they're very community minded, where the, the chief for that particular part of the borough, like Chief Madry in Brooklyn North, they're doing a lot of work with the community and engaging them but and really working with them. But there are other places where a lot of people are saying, okay, as city council member Gibson said, you know, yes, there's still people that are really committing crime, but it's always been that distinction of just you're assumed guilty because of your skin color or because of your race or because of your ethnicity that has offended so many people. So give us the police officer's perspective, put us in, in the mindset of an officer on the streets right now where they have to, to make sure people are being protected and yet also make sure uh, people's rights are not being violated. Why is it so hard to find that place right in the middle of balance and justice for all? Well, I just think right now, I mean, we, we can't hide behind the fact that police officers feel that they're not getting the support from the leadership of the NYPD. They're not getting the support from City Hall at this particular point. So they have no real guidance. They really don't know what to do. If they take action, it's, it's again, it's scrutinized heavily, both by local politicians, both by the media, and also internally within the department. So it's almost like the police officers have no guidance. They don't know which direction to go. You know, and, and I feel bad for them. They need to go back to grassroots training. They need to reinstill the nobility of policing with these police officers, remove the cynicism that it's inherent within the NYPD and, and other agencies, right? So again, they have to go back to quality training. They have to reinforce why they became police officers and get these officers you know, to have a purpose. And right now they don't feel like they have any real purpose because they're lacking support, they're lacking training and they're lacking guidance. Bill Hamilton, from your, from your perspective in, in terms of people being unjustly accused, what's been your experience about that? Uh, in terms of like the citizens being unjustly yeah, in terms accused, of defense, like especially when you were working with Bronx defenders, people being unfairly accused or being harshly punished for things that were minor. I mean, I think that's what keeps me positive about change because during my time at the Bronx defenders, you're looking back between 2009 and 2015. So in the first few years of my tenure there, you still had a lot of the stop and frisk policies, you know, that had been initiated by you know Giuliani and, and super ramped up by Bloomberg. They were still very much so in effect. So I would get into arraignments on any given Sunday night 
you know, the pins would just be filled with hundreds of people, not in there on, you know, serious felonies, but on those broken windows, you know, just minuscule offenses that, you know, to the extent a lot of them didn't commit, whether it was a trespass, whether it was, you know, a simple marijuana possession, even though the marijuana wasn't in public view, but you were just having these stop and frisk situations where police officers were going into people's pockets, pulling the stuff out, putting it in the public view, and basically manufacturing charges. Now, that was at the beginning of my tenure, but now it's not like that anymore. So that's where I say I do have an appreciation and a belief that things can also get better because I've seen the systemic change just from what it used to be like in 2011 as opposed to now. It's not perfect now. You still have people getting stopped and frisked. You still have people sometimes coming up on charges that they're not necessarily guilty of or being falsely accused. However, do I see a, a, a total change since 2010, 2011? based upon a lot of, you know, the local legislation that Councilwoman Gibson is speaking about? Absolutely. So the police, you know, they might be, they're, they're totally capable of change. And so as Dr. Gonzalez said, we need to kind of take this moment as a grassroots approach to new training to kind of keep the buck moving forward so that we're not dealing with these issues of George Floyd and every other name that I just don't feel like going down right now because we know that there's- No, the list, the, list, the list is so long. In terms of the role of police, it seems like there's a big debate right now, public debate about what it should be, that this throw them up against the wall, pat them down and see if they have a gun is out and something else needs to come in, but it doesn't seem like there's a clear picture. What's your take on that? I think what needs to come in is just a little bit more fair and equitable policing. So when we hear a lot of the uproar and a lot of the disgust with that kind of rough and tumble Nixon, Reagan era, you know, tough on crime, get against the wall, you know, let me pat you down type of policing. I just think what we're realizing with a lot of the unrest and a lot of the protests is that people are tired of it because it is just a police culture that in many respects just goes unaccountable. It's a kind of rogue style of policing, at least as the public takes it in. And it's just something that makes people who don't live on the Upper East Side or don't, who don't live in some of the more socioeconomic, you know, well-to-do neighborhoods just feel unjustly policed. And it leads to these kinds of situations where when you're dealing with this, you know, police versus community, as opposed to police protecting community type of culture, it leads to these situations where it's an us versus them. And you have men ending up dying on the street, be it in chokeholds, be it with knees on the backs of their necks, in a way that if the approach to the police and what policing was supposed to be about was not so much of an us versus them, but a community style of policing as a whole, Maybe you don't have these kinds of situations going on. And I think that's what people are optimistic about and hoping about and demanding moving forward. Dr. Robert Gonzalez, what about that? We keep hearing this term community policing. We've heard it for years. Uh, when Commissioner O'Neill was in charge, he was talking about the uh, neighborhood policing, having officers that basically had relationships with the community. They were, they were showing a lot of progress with that. But was that ever really accepted by rank and file police officers or, or by the brass, do you think? I think the rank and file, they did have a challenge trying to acclimate to the new community policing model. What we saw over history, it's not just the Silver Shield police officers that don't buy into it. It's also supervision and management. Right now, with most of these high-profile incidents that take place, there's always a breakdown in supervision. So if you look at the old community policing model, you look at the current community policing model, if you don't have first-line supervisors monitoring their personnel out in the field, you're going to have situations like what happened with George Floyd, what happened with Eric Gardner. So there has to be a revamp of first-line supervision and law enforcement so that they can keep an eye on those police officers that are on the field, often most of their tour unsupervised. 
City Council Member Vanessa Gibson, there's a big sense in the community, as you know, that people feel there's two systems of justice, one for whites, one for blacks, and maybe even three, and then one for police officers that no matter what laws get passed, there's a skepticism, no matter what laws get passed, nothing is really going to change. What do you think about that? And guys, I jump into I agree and I really understand and sympathize because we have seen for far too long in communities of color where there's an over-policing, there's an aggression by some police officers, not all, but in other communities where you see large gatherings, they're being given face masks and hand sanitizers and we are being aggressively targeted. And that's been a problem. And then when you talk about a system of justice, is the system really fair to everyone? So when you look at black and brown individuals that are through the criminal justice system, there's a different level of justice as compared to everyone else. And holding those police officers that are accused of misconduct through the CCRV process and through other mechanisms in the city. And you know, let's be very honest, the police unions have not been a real partner in this process. Sometimes they're a barrier to progress, whether it's legislation or any other measure that we're trying to do. The legislation is key, but I also think that it's the implementation and the enforcement. If you have a city of you know, 8.6 million New Yorkers, a, a variety of different communities, but you enforce the law in different communities in different ways, you're going to see exactly what you've seen over the past several years. And that cannot happen. People just wanted to be treated fairly, just like any other communities. Because if you look at, you know, marijuana arrests, it's happening in white communities, probably more than it's happening in communities of color, but we're the ones being arrested for marijuana possession. And so that has to change. People have to really not only see it with their eyes, but they have to feel it in their community. They have to feel it from offices on the ground, not just NCO and community affairs, but you're talking about patrol officers and many of them don't engage with the community because they're so busy responding to radio runs. They don't have the time. That's been the challenge as well. Phil, with the, uh, the whole COVID-19, the coronavirus, the social distancing, when the NYPD was doing the enforcement, we saw very clear examples. We saw in, in Canarsie, Brooklyn, we saw young, a group of young black men and women in, in their 20s. They were put on the curb, zip tied, pulled out of a club, or pulled out of a barbershop that was turned into an impromptu club, all given summonses, and basically humiliated in terms of how they had to sit down like children on the street curb. And that, yeah, on the Upper East Side and predominantly white communities in the East Village, people were allowed to party, they're allowed to stand outside of bars, drink, open like it was a street fair. What effect does that have on people in terms of how justice is enforced and how, how their rights are? I mean, I hate to say it, but it's just one of those situations where everybody looks at it and they're not surprised. And I think that's what's so sad about it. When we talk about the distinct styles of policing in the Black neighborhoods and in the white neighborhoods of New York City, even in the Black and Latino neighborhoods in New York City as opposed to the white neighborhoods, it's unfortunate, it's unfair. And when you talk about COVID-19, you know, it was actually a health risk, right? Because to the extent that you're arresting these, you know, Black men in, in these Black men and women that were on the street in Canarsie, putting them through the situation where they're going through the process, going to central bookings, potentially even going to arraignments for matters that you weren't arresting, you know, people on the Upper East Side for, who from a percentage share had the worst, you know, experience with COVID in the city. It was Black and Latino residents. Yeah. So, you know, it's like you're perpetuating not just a problem with respect to criminal justice, system, but also the inequities within public health, because now, you know, these Black and Latino people are coming out of the jails, going back to their neighborhoods. You know, the jails were just festering pots for COVID. They were incubators going back, you know, and it, it, it's just... It's just, like it, injustice, it's just injustice uh, upon injustice. 
All right, we're going to take a short break. This is Street Soldiers. We're talking about police reform. We'll be right back. Yeah, 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 yeah. Salute. This is General Steele from Smith & Wesson. And right now you're listening to Street Soldiers with your girl, Lisa Evers. Real issues, real politics, and real people. Only on Hot 97. Welcome back to this episode of Street Soldiers. We're talking about police reform, public safety, or politics. Joining me for this conversation is City Council Member Vanessa Gibson. She represents the Bronx and is a member of the City Council Public Safety Committee. Vanessa, great to have you with us. Thank you for having me, Lisa. Thank you so much. Also with us is Dr. Robert Gonzalez. He's an assistant professor of criminal justice at St. John's University. He's also a former assistant deputy commissioner at the NYPD for training. And he was also a cop on the streets of New York for the NYPD for nearly 20 years. Dr. Gonzalez, thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me, Lisa. We appreciate it. Also with us is attorney Philip Hamilton. He's a former Bronx defender and now a partner in the law firm of Hamilton Clark LLP, specializing in criminal defense and civil rights law. Phil, great to have you with us. Always great to be with you, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Dr. Gonzalez, yeah. what's the police mentality right now? Put on your, you know, put, put on your uniform and you're out there. What is your sense about the morale of police officers and are they even being given clear instructions? Because you know we saw it with social distancing, like we were just discussing, but also we saw it with, um, in terms of how different protesters were handled, how people were handled in different neighborhoods, in terms of protesting. It seemed like there were just kind of this patchwork quilt of operations orders, or if there were even orders of how to deal with these different things. So are police feeling confused about their role right now? Oh yes, absolutely, Lisa. They are extremely confused. The orders are getting really, really clouded from the top on down. They don't know if they should be enforcers. They don't know if they should be social workers. They don't know if they should just sit there and watch everything happen. So there hasn't been any real clear direction and that's coming right from the top. And the top is blaming City Hall, right? So there's a lot of mixed information being sent down. I actually feel sorry for these police officers because they really don't know what to do. They really have no direction. They have no support. And they're actually being handcuffed by City Hall on what the proper approach is in dealing with the pandemic, in dealing with rioters versus protesters. So again, it, it's a very, very tough time to be a police officer these days, and I really sympathize with the officers out in the field. City Council mm -hmm. Member Vanessa Gibson, you say that police officers were asking them to do too much. And we saw cases in the Bronx too where there, there were mentally ill people, but they were violent, and there was a life-threatening situation going on. What do you mean when you say, give us some examples of them being asked to do too much? Right. So I agree with what Dr. Rob is saying with all the executive orders. And let's also go further to the top and talk about the governor. The governor has put down an enormous amount of executive orders that were confusing for us. And imagine how police officers interpret that. And a lot of it is a judgment call, your own individual judgment based on your training as an officer. So it's just it's a bunch of confusion from the governor and the mayor, Albany and City Hall. Officers are generally asked to do a lot. They were asked to enforce social distancing when we didn't believe that was their job in the first place. They're asked to remove homeless individuals off of our subways, out of our parks. That should not be their job. We have to have more of a focus on health. These are a health crises that we are dealing with. COVID-19 is a health crisis, which means we should have a public health response, not a police response. We've always said that. When it comes to homelessness in our streets, in our subways, it has to have a health component, 
meaning it should be led by the Department of Health and not the NYPD. And for all too often, that has always been the case. Responding to EDPs, emotionally disturbed persons, when 911 calls call in, come in, we've talked about adding, you know, social components for police officers because they don't know what they are dealing with going into that 911 call, right? All you get is a radio running the information, but you really don't want to know what's on the other side of that door. And so a lot of this to me has been lacking the coordination and real leadership and really putting police officers out there in mayhem and they don't know what to do. Like Dr. Rob said, they're asked to do every and anything right now in New York City. And a lot of it is not fair. And when you talk about police officers work, it's fighting crime, getting guns off the streets, dealing with, you know, gangs and those who are the, the real you know, violent individuals in this city. It's a small minority, it's not a majority, but it's a small population of individuals who are the largest drivers of crime in this city. And that's what the NYPD should be focused on. Uh, Phil, in terms of the, the laws that were passed, this Eric Garner bill and this 50A, what are these bills gonna do? Well, outright and finally now, we already had a ban on chokeholds with respect to internally at the NYPD since 1993, but now it's on the books in the New York penal law that to the extent if you have a chokehold situation like what we saw with Eric Garner or even one that doesn't lead to you know a death, you're looking at up to 15 years in prison. So I think that that's like a good deterrent measure to kind of be in the back of you know officers' minds to remind them that you know the chokehold is just not an acceptable measure. We have now you know Governor Cuomo having signed into law the repeal of Civil Rights Law 58, which I touched upon earlier, was a law that in many respects shielded the personnel records of NYPD, corrections officers, FDNY, um, to the extent that you had bad apples within the force that had you know, records of misconduct, records of excessive force, and you couldn't see it, now we are gonna be able to see it. We're gonna be able to put in those FOIL requests. The press can put in the FOIL requests. It will allow these officers to be better scrutinized and for there to be better accountability. Um, you know, we have the situation now where in terms of the false 911 calls that people were making, we think back to Amy Cooper a couple of weeks ago, you know, that now is going to be outlawed to the extent that people are just unjustly calling the police on Black people for just living life, right, for not doing anything wrong, for just, you know, standing around in a park watching birds. You know, that's no longer going to cut it here in New York. So what we're seeing, I think, is positive change. And, you know, to the extent we hate what happened with Mr. Floyd, it's, it's absolutely heartbreaking. And it's got to be heartbreaking enough for society to be in a situation where we're not going to let his death in any way be in vain. And these first reform measures that we're seeing being passed they were already written a long time ago. That's why I was able to get through the process so quickly, okay? But this was the, the moment finally where we were able to push it through. And, you know, it just, it, it feels good to be able to see some of this change and to be able to see better measures of accountability because that's I think that's better for me. Vanessa, in terms, in terms of the city council, city council's considering a lot of different laws, but a lot of the laws too that rule the police department and govern their behavior are state laws. What do you think from your point of view and all your experience, what do you think the city council can actually do that would be the most effective and really help restore public faith in the police and kind of try to bridge that gap right now of distrust? Right. So I think obviously what the state legislature did last week was incredible. And this is really a moment in time. It's a moment in, in our history in America and in New York City. And I believe that the death and the horrific murder of George Floyd is really an opportunity to wake up a sleeping nation. People were sleeping as a country on racism in America, and now people are waking up. We don't have a choice. The protesters, the demonstrators, those that are out there on the streets that are calling out for change want to see something happen right now. 
through legislation, through budget, through any opportunity that government officials have to make a difference, to not only talk about it, but be about it. Do something about what we're seeing in this community. So we are also doing a chokehold ban that's carried by Rory Lansman, and that was introed after Aaron Garner was killed. We also have the right to record measures where we codify individuals' ability to record police activities that they see. We also have the POST Act, which is police surveillance and technology. And we also have a bill that really relates to officers that are shielding their badges, which seems so minuscule, but really can have an impact. I think all of this collectively is a package, but it's a step forward. It's not the entire solution. We know that we still have to deal with a racist America, but we can hold everyone accountable. I also have a bill called an early warning system because as uh, Philip said, we want to identify warning signs of officers that accumulate excessive substantiated CCRB cases and excessive lawsuits that the city settles. It's a warning sign. Something's wrong with that officer. We have to take them off patrol, take them out of a unit. We got to get them more training because something is wrong and we don't want to wait until something happens. So the early warning system is another part of the package that we're going to pass tomorrow. But again, I don't want people to feel like we will not you know, have issues. There will always be issues in America, right? But we can make strides of progress. We can invest in police officers in training. We can look at supporting youth programs and all the things that communities of color have been starving for. We've been affected the most by COVID-19 and we don't have a response on how we deal with underlying healthcare issues. So, right, so this all has to work together as a part of a package. So I'm grateful for the council members and all the leadership because I do think we will see change, but I think change comes with time and it comes with progress and moving you know, forward in the work that we do. Dr. Robert Gonzalez, in, in, ter in terms of the training, in terms of building in that accountability, where do you see from your experience when you were on the inside with the NYPD and now outside, where are those the, the greatest needs for accountability? Where, where does the whole accountability thing break down? Well, I have to agree with Vanessa and Phil. Um, we have to open up transparency. And with the passing of the recent legislation with 50A, um, I think that's, that's going to start to happen. What we also find is that the New York City Police Department is one of the many, actually one of the only agencies that has a trial process that's internally. Most other agencies have the Office of Trials and Hearings. So perhaps the city council should look at that and decide that the cases, the disciplinary cases within the NYPD should be handled externally, like all the other agencies at oath, Office of Trials and Hearings. The police commissioner has far too much power. He can actually overrule a disciplinary decision from the CCRB, and we think that's a huge problem. He should not be able to discipline and render a, a, a decision on his officers when there are other mechanisms in city government to do that for him. Uh, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back with more of this special episode of Street Soldiers on um, police reform. What up? This is Trey Songz and this is Street Soldiers with Lisa Evers. Real issues, real politics, real people, only on Hot 9-7. Welcome back to this episode of Street Soldiers. We're talking about police reform, public safety, or politics. Joining me for this conversation is City Council Member Vanessa Gibson. She represents the Bronx and is a member of the City Council's Public Safety Committee. Vanessa, great to have you with us. Thank you for having me, Lisa. Thank you so much. Also with us is Dr. Robert Gonzalez. He's an assistant professor of criminal justice at St. John's University. He's also a former assistant deputy commissioner at the NYPD for training. And he was also a cop on the streets of New York with the NYPD for nearly 20 years. Dr. Gonzalez, thank you so much for being with us. 
You're welcome. Thank you for having me, Lisa. We appreciate it. Also with us is attorney Philip Hamilton. He's a former Bronx defender and now a partner in the law firm of Hamilton Clark LLP, specializing in criminal defense and civil rights law. Phil, great to have you with us. Always great to be with you, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. What do you think? Do you think the Department of Investigations should take it over? Do you think the the attorney, the state attorney general, should be uh, look, looking at any of these police cases? What do you think, Dr. Gonzalez? Well, right now there's there's a tremendous amount of overlap, and no one's communicating. Like you mentioned, you have the New York State Attorney General. We have the Department of Investigations. We have the NYPD um, uh, Inspector General. We have Internal Affairs. We have the Civilian Case Review Board, and we also have the five district attorneys. But unfortunately, they don't all communicate. So perhaps the city government needs to come out with one individual, perhaps the um, integrity czar of the NYPD that's responsible for overseeing all those different mechanisms and ultimately having sole responsibility on how to deal with those disciplinary cases. Right now, there's too much overlap. And again, we don't know what the right hand is doing. We don't know what the left hand is doing. And we need to streamline that so that the public has a transparent one individual process, a one agency process to monitor that. Vanessa, what do you think? Who do you think should be in charge of investigating these these cases? That's a good question, and I agree. There's too much. Uh, there's too much oversight and too many individuals working with in silos and multiple agencies: DOI, uh, Corp Council, CCRB, the City Council. It is a lot. And you know, again, whatever we do in the city of New York, remember we also have to work with our legislators in Albany, and so that doesn't, you know, preclude. The governor from coming in and putting in an independent special prosecutor in cases of police involved shootings. So I think for us in the city, we just want one person. Uh, we don't know yet who that person is or should be, but I think it's a conversation worth having because there is a lot of different levels of oversight. And what I get so frustrated about is agencies don't talk to each other, they don't share information, and they don't share data. And then you wonder why sometimes we have the chaos we have. We are all in New York City trying to do our jobs, but we have to work together. There has to be a collaboration. And there's no greater time than the present to make sure that there's a collaborative effort working with the NYPD to make sure, again, that a majority of the officers all doing great work. We have to get rid of the bad apples. I think we should get rid of the bad apples everywhere because we have them in other places as well, not just law enforcement. Right. But law enforcement is out there in the public and you see them every day and their actions can have catastrophic consequences. And so that's why the limelight is on police right now. But I do think, again, I've been looking at this across the board because we're in the middle of a budget process and we have a big budget deficit and we have to figure out what programs are important to us, keep young people active this summer and seniors and all the programs we provide. But we also have to have a police department that is functioning and has the support that it needs. So that's where we are now, working on the budget and trying to find some common ground and balance. But I do think there should be one person that would be over overseer. But you know how that is. Everybody wants to be the chief Indian with a title. So that's the challenge we have to figure out who that one person yeah. is. Exactly. Phil, who do you think would be who do you think would be best suited? Or, or do you believe all also that there should be one person that's ultimately in charge of this? I mean, ultimately, I think any of those agencies that you know Councilmember Gibson and Dr. Gonzalez mentioned are capable and and and, and wholly able to handle those kinds of investigations, whether it's the CCRB, whether it's the DOI. Um, and when you think about like some of the civil litigation ultimately that's brought against the city for the wrongful conduct of officers, you know, court counsel has a lot of information and a lot of backstories from depositions 
they have these understandings of who these bad apples are and who these offices are. So when, you know, Councilmember Gibson talks about wanting an early warning system, and when we talk about, you know, wanting to have these collaborative efforts where we have data sharing, I think the most important thing is no matter which agency takes over the control of the investigations, we need a centralized place to be able to share and see the data as the public. So it's like, if I can even just do a little bit of lobbying here, <laughs> and whatever you get back to city council, I, I would love to see ultimately a system where I'm not having to put in all these FOIL requests or where I'm not having to go down to the courthouse to look at, you know, uh, documents from lawsuits to try to figure out what's going on with these officers or sending all the subpoenas. We just need to have something on nyc.gov that is a centralized location where you can see, you know, officers that have issues. We think back to Eric Garner, you know, Officer Pantaleo, as we later came to find out after extensive subpoenaing, and I think somebody ended up having to leak it. He had a bad record. There were like five right. prior issues that, as Council Gibson says, it was a warning sign. Right. Officer Tobin, the person that killed, uh, you know, George Floyd, he had 16 or 17 complaints lodged against him. These things just don't happen in a vacuum. There's right. generally a history there. And if we as the public, if you as the press, Lisa, if, you know, I as an attorney, if we can't see these things, then the unaccountability is just allowed to fester. Everybody can just do what they want. And we end up in situations where we're adding another black man to the list of dead black men at the hands of law enforcement. So I think we definitely have to sew that up. Whichever agency takes over the investigation, just share that data and let's continue to move forward positively. Yeah. And I think one more thing we need, Lisa, going forward, is I think we need one uniform system for use of force nationally. Too many agencies have different use of force policies. What we see in Minneapolis may not be the same in New York City. So the federal government needs to come out with one standard for use of force that every agency, all the 17,000 police departments in the country must abide by. Because again, we see too many different uh, systems of use of force. And what we see here in New York is not what's being done in Florida. What's being done in Florida is not what's required in California. So there needs to be one system of use of force guidelines. So I'd like to see that going forward, because I think that would settle a lot of the different discrepancies we have with what's being done in different agencies. And make a huge difference. Uh, City Council Member Vanessa Gibson, I'll give you the final word. What do you, where do you think this is going? Are you hopeful about change? Are you, how are you feeling? So I am hopeful. I've been very emotional the last several weeks. It's been painful as an African-American woman, you know, seeing what's happening to my brothers and sisters across the country. Um, but I stay prayed up. I stay full of faith and optimism because I know this too shall pass as we are getting out of COVID. I know that we will get out of this. As I said, this has been a setback for us as a city, but we're going to come back stronger than ever because we have no choice. We have no choice when New Yorkers' public safety is at stake. We have got to do our jobs. We can always look at ways of improvement. We've got to be creative and innovative, but we also have to have leadership leadership at all levels. People have to step up. We need a plan. There's nothing. If we plan to fail, then we fail to plan. And that's the reality. We need leadership. We need a plan. We need to be prepared and we need to stay woke because things are happening all across the country that we are very mindful of in New York City. We have a budget for the city of New York that has to be passed in two weeks. So there is a lot going on, but I feel very hopeful because we have hardworking men and women that are public servants in this city that care they care about their neighbors, they care about New York City. And so with that, I have hope because I know that we've been through a lot as people across this country, particularly marginalized people, people of color, immigrants. We've been through a lot and we're gonna get through this because we're tough, we're resilient. And at the end of the day, we don't have a choice. We have to send a better message and a legacy for our young people that when they see inequity, they have to stand up. And so I do this for kids. I do this for our young kings and queens 
because they deserve to live, they deserve to breathe, and they deserve to have a bright future. Absolutely. City Council Member Vanessa Gibson, thank you so much for being with us. Dr. Robert Gonzalez, thank you so much for joining us. Attorney Philip Hamilton, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for joining us for this special episode of Speed Soldiers. I'm Lisa Evers. Remember, use your mind. It's your best weapon. Together, we can all get through this and make it better for everyone. Let's push for peace, love, and justice for all. Amen. Amen. Hey, I'm a Diallo was shot 19 times. The police fired 41 shots combined. Mistaken identity, they had to admit it. When they went to trial, all four officers got acquitted. Ahmaud Aubrey, his skin made him a target. Two racist white men shot him while he was jogging. B. Betty Jones was inside of our house the day after Christmas when shots rang out. A bullet traveled inside of our home and slaughtered up. No charges were filed against the officer. Cornelius Brown, cops chose to kill. They shot him seven times. He was mentally ill. Dominic Fuller was murdered. It gets stranger. They say he had a gun. All he had was a stapler. Eric Garner, he was a father. But now a martyr, ain't deserved to be slaughtered. His last words, I can't breathe. Moment of silence. The officer who killed him didn't even get indicted. Emmett Till, 14 years old. They claim he flirted with a white woman. How cold. They took off his clothes, called them a lynched them and threw them in the Tallahassee River. F. Freddie Gray had his spinal cord severed. Killed in the police van after arrested. Six officers got charged. This is ridiculous. Two years, four trials, no convictions. George Floyd, three officers nailed on him. He told him he couldn't breathe. They didn't care for him. The country rioting everywhere for him. Those cops, I have no fear for him. H. Hector Morwan, he was unarmed. The cops shot him dead. He cried for his mom. I. India Kaga, Navy vet. The passenger in the vehicle was a suspect. A baby in the back seat, the cops started shooting. The officers were cleared of criminal wrongdoing. J. Jamal Clark, restraint wasn't enough. They shot him in his head while he was in handcuffs. Cal Coppin was mentally ill, but they say he had a gun. All he had was a hairbrush. The cops shot him, a king with the coroner. No charges were filed against the officer. L. Laquan McDonald was jaywalking. They shot him to the ground, murdered without a warning. Alleged that he pulled the knife and tried to rush him. The video proved they lied. How disgusting. M. Mike Brown, the suburbs of Ferguson. Allegedly, a cop drove by. He had words with him. The officer shot him. He did nothing wrong. Why did he have to kill him? The man was unarmed. And Nathaniel Pickett, rest heavenly. He was brutally murdered by a sheriff deputy. Oh, Oscar Grant, the world knows his name. He was traveling, the cops grabbed him off the train, placed him on his knees, laid him on his chest, then shot him in his back. May he peacefully rest. Philando Castile, traffic stop. He was legally strapped, he informed the cop. The officer got nervous, a murder was committed. Charged with manslaughter, but he got acquitted. Quintonio LeGrand called the cops three different times before he got shot. Allegedly, they say he charged at him with a bat. But since he made the call, it's hard to believe that. Rodney King, they beat him with billy clubs. They blame us, but the cops are really thugs. The verdict was not guilty. How shifty. That sparked the worst riot scene since the 60s. Sandra Bland, traffic stop. The racial profiling of us has to stop. 
Three days later, she was hanging in the cell. They ruled it a suicide. The truth shall prevail. Terrence Franklin was cornered in the basement. He tried to surrender, got executed by hatred. You. The U stands for the unknown Who died by racism, they faces weren't shown Victor LaRussa, they thought he had one But after they killed him, they never found the gun Walter Scott, the world loves you The cops said he feared for his life in the scuffle The video proved he lied, revealed facts He ran for his life, eight shots in his back Xavier Rovey was riding his bike Point blank range, they shot him and took his life. Why? Yusuf Hawkins was shot down in 1989 by some racist clowns. Jamil Crawford was chased to his death, rammed into a wall, he took his last breath. Zimmerman, I know you think you got away with it, but everyone has karma, yours gonna be my favorite.